This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Jimmy Dore Show, Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Bugle, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, Congressional Dish, The Progressive Magazine, and Moyers and & Company. And now prepare to clutch your pearls as you hear both good and bad things about Obamacare, if you can even imagine it. This week, Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius was grilled by House Republicans on the malfunctioning rollout of the Obamacare website. She apologized and said the problems would be fixed, but this only made the Republicans more furious because they love those problems. (laughs) The GOP also introduced a new talking point that, contrary to what Obama had said, the health care law will force many people to lose their current insurance. Both Obama and Sebelius then responded that the insurance those people were losing was crappy anyway, and under Obamacare, they could get better insurance. To which the Republicans replied, but what about Benghazi? (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Obama's popularity has fallen sharply in NBC News' Wall Street Journal poll, although the poll was skewed by factors such as everything being said about Obama on NBC News and the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) Now the Republicans want to delay Obamacare's individual mandate to give sick people more time to enroll and healthy people more time to blow it off. (laughs) (laughs) They're demanding Sebelius' resignation, probably so they can refuse to approve her replacement unless we get rid of Obamacare. (laughs) On the bright side, none of this will make a difference if enough Americans end up getting health insurance, because as much as people hate slow websites, they really hate dying young. The criticisms of the Affordable Care Act expanded well beyond the obvious problems with the healthcare.gov website. Media reports picked up on a new theme. People with insurance were being kicked off their plans. Those people, we were told in an NBC report that got a lot of attention, are now experiencing sticker shock, forced to pay significantly more for their health insurance. But some context is in order here. This problem applies to a small segment of the population that buys individual insurance. These policies, long before Obamacare came into the picture, were frequently discontinued, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50%. So to see policies canceled is not exactly an unexpected development. Under the new law, cheap policies that don't offer much in the way of actual insurance can no longer be sold. Most experts expect these buyers will get a better deal under the Affordable Care Act with more comprehensive coverage at roughly the same price. Fox host Bill O'Reilly, for example, flagged a Kaiser Health News Service article about the cancellations to show that the health care law was busted. But the very same article also pointed out that those seeing their policies canceled would get new, more comprehensive policies at a similar price.
But at the moment, the news broadcasts are filled with stories about individuals who have received cancellation letters from their insurance companies and who think that their costs will soon skyrocket. They're right to be concerned, frustrated, and even angry. It should be the job of journalism to explain how the law will affect them going forward. One example, a California woman named Deborah Calavaro, who's been featured on several reports, is apparently losing a policy with a monthly premium of under $300, and she's being told she has to buy a new policy for $478 a month. That's where many of the news accounts leave it. But L.A. Times reporter Michael Hiltzik tracked her down, got her pertinent information, and showed how she could purchase a plan on the California Exchange for roughly the same price as she was paying before. As Hiltzik put it, the shoddy reporting on her case is failing her and the rest of us, too. There have been a lot of specific stories circulating relating to Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and specific individuals whose health care premiums are supposedly going to go up under the Affordable Care Act. A lot of them turn out to be bogus, and it doesn't turn out, in some cases, that the individual claiming their, their health insurance will cost more is lying. It appears they just don't know, and they don't understand Obamacare. Here's an example. There was a woman named Deborah Cavallaro who was interviewed by Maria Bartiromo. And Maria Bartiromo is a CNBC host. This happened yesterday. And Deborah Cavallaro went on and she said, I'm a hardworking real estate agent up here in Westchester, uh, uh, Los Angeles. I've been featured prominently on news shows because my premiums are going up. And she said uh, that uh, President Obama said people were going to be able to just keep their health plans and, and that their prices wouldn't go up, and that's not happening with her. And Maria Bartiromo said, uh, um, or she said to Maria Bartiromo, please explain to me how my plan is a substandard plan when I'd be paying more for the exchange plans than I'm currently paying by a wide margin. Now, Maria Bartiromo didn't care to actually figure out what happened, so the LA Times has a column called The Economy Hub with Michael Hiltzik. And Michael Hiltzik, this is worth reading, explains exactly what's going on. And the entire claim that Obamacare is unaffordable for Deborah Cavallaro is based merely on her own misunderstandings. I'll explain. After the interview, Michael Hiltzik called Deborah Cavallaro, and she explained that what she has is a catastrophic coverage plan. She pays $293 a month as an individual policyholder. It has a $5,000 a year deductible, and it limits her total out-of-pocket cost to $8,500. This allows two doctor visits a year with a $40 copay. After that, she pays the entire cost of doctor's visits. 
This is the definition of a non-conforming plan under President Obama's uh, uh, Affordable Care Act. The deductible and the out-of-pocket maximums are really high. This is not a good plan. It's it's two ninety-three a month, which apparently Ms. Cavallaro likes, but it is just not a good plan. So, what about a replacement plan? As a replacement plan, she says she was quoted four seventy-eight a month by her insurance broker, but that's actually not what she would have to pay. She didn't think to look about into the website that would tell her what kind of a subsidy would you would you get? Because remember, Lewis. Obamacare involves subsidies based on income for your premiums. And w without saying what her income is, because that is being kept private, this year her income would have qualified her for a significant subsidy, which she seemed unaware of. At her age, she's eligible for a silver plan for $333 a month after the subsidy. That's off that is $40 more than she's paying now, but the plan is drastically better. The deductible is two thousand instead of five thousand dollars. You know how quickly you can eat through several thousand dollars in medical care. The maximum out-of-pocket expense is sixty-three fifty instead of eighty-five hundred, and her co-pays would be forty-five dollars for primary care. But all visits would be covered, not just two per year. So this is better than her current plan. It barely costs more in terms of premium. And over the long term, over the course of a year, you should be saving money. So this is a specific story, Lewis, of someone that's being touted by the media, by, by corporate media, as look at what's happening to this poor person. For 40 bucks more a month, she gets drastically better care. She just didn't know it. But David, who wants to go and do all that research and crunch all those numbers and do all those things that you need to do to find out the truth? It's very right. inconvenient. Too much trouble, too much grief. Makes me want to beg for relief of too much worry, one mind to hold. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. We fly with our homes, care about the same things, we stand strong together, so let me hear you sing. With our old wings, dreaming all the big dreams. Long live all the Gonians, we're free to be healthy. Long live all the Gonians, we're free to be healthy. That colorful harmonic, sort of trippy retro ad was created by the state of Oregon, obviously, as a way to promote the thing that you saw right there at the very end of the PSA. Cover Oregon. 
the official state health insurance exchange created under our new national health reform law. Cover Oregon was supposed to launch October 1st, along with the new national exchange. But like the federal exchange, Oregon's system had some technical difficulties. So they decided not to open the site yet. People can still prep their applications for health insurance, but their applications will be processed by hand instead of online for the time being until the online system has worked out, worked out the kinks. Even with those technical glitches, though, something sort of amazing has happened in Oregon. Since October 1st, so in just the last three weeks, Oregon has managed to sign up so many people for health insurance that they have cut the total number of people who don't have health insurance in the state by 10% already. Look at that headline. In the span of the first two weeks, actually, the number of uninsured people in Oregon dropped by 10% in total, thanks to Obamacare. And that is even without the exchange opening up. That's because the other part of Obamacare is the expansion of the existing health insurance program for low-income families, which we've had for decades. They expanded the criteria for who can qualify to get health insurance from that program, from Medicaid. And in so doing, Oregon officials have signed up tens of thousands of people in the state who were uninsured before Obamacare went into effect. In states where governors and legislatures have wisely allowed it, the Affordable Care Act provides the opportunity for many Americans to get covered under Medicaid for the first time. So in Oregon, for example, that's helped cut the number of uninsured people by 10% just in the last three weeks. Think about that. That's 56,000 more Americans who now have health care. The original Affordable Care Act, when it, when it passed Congress, mandated that all states would have to do what Oregon did. They would all have to expand the eligibility rules for people to get health insurance through the Medicaid program. But when the health reform law went before the Supreme Court last year, the court overall upheld the constitutionality of the law. But they did change part of it. They changed it so the Medicaid thing in the states is now optional instead of mandatory. So because of the Supreme Court ruling, states can opt out of expanding their Medicaid programs to cover more people. 22 states have either opted out or are leaning toward opting out already. This number is still fluid. It continues to change. For instance, Ohio today moved toward saying yes to expanding Medicaid. But at this point, there are 22 states that are moving toward opting out. And yes, those 22 states are mainly states with Republican governors. And so now, even just a few weeks into the start of implementation of this new national project, we're starting to get really vastly unequal outcomes and unequal progress among the 50 states. There is no single story to tell about how reforming healthcare in America is going so far. There's a lot of different smaller stories. The right, of course, is hoping for just broad brush failure. Average Americans, their families are also feeling the pain thanks to the healthcare overhaul train wreck. And six of them, they're here with us tonight to tell their story, which, by the way, the media ignores. That's a man named Sean Hannity who hosts a television program on the Fox News Channel, which is across the street from us. Mr. Hannity recently interviewed three families who he said have been suffering with the boot of Obamacare on their necks. That's the narrative on the right now. Obamacare is the end of liberty. Obamacare is destroying America. Salon.com recently published a fact check of those Obamacare horror stories that were aired on Fox News. A former staffer to Montana Governor Brian Schweitzer, Eric Stern, who was on All In tonight, uh, he decided to track down each of the Hannity Show's guests who said Obamacare was ruining their lives. One guest said that Obamacare was destroying his construction business. He was firing employees. 
Well, he may be firing employees, but it's not because of Obamacare, since his business is small enough that nothing in the new law applies to his business at all. Another guest said her health insurance plan was being terminated because of Obamacare. True, as it turns out, but that's because her plan was overcharging her. And now she can spend less money to get a plan that covers everything that used to be covered, plus more. Isn't that terrible? Same goes for the third couple that appeared on that show on Friday night. They told the Fox News audience that their existing health insurance plan was also canceled. They said they think they are now facing a 75% rate increase. Actually, turns out they can get a plan that covers what their old plan covered for much cheaper. It's on the Obamacare exchange. The reason that couple does not know it's on the Obamacare exchange is because they refuse to look at the exchange. They say they're opposed to shopping there on principle, and so they will not look. So, awkward cable TV segment. But the right has their narrative and they're sticking to it. Off TV and back in policy land, the states and the federal government are plugging along with varying degrees of success. This past weekend, the federal health insurance, exchange, health, in, health insurance exchange was taken down for more maintenance. President Obama at that Rose Garden event today said the administration was mounting a tech surge to make the site work better. This week, Republicans in Congress are planning to hold oversight hearings about how terrible and horrible it's all gone so far, even while efforts continue to fix what's wrong and press on with the rollout. So who knows how it's all going to shake out politically? Who gets the credit and who gets the blame? But in the meantime, brass tacks, 56,000 non-hypothetical real people in Oregon who didn't have health insurance last month have it now. Right next door to Oregon, the state of Washington, they're crowing now about how, if you look at Oregon compared to them, Oregon's a failure compared to them in Washington State. In Washington State, they've got their online exchange open, and they've already signed up more than 60,000 people. And again, most of them are from the Medicaid expansion, but tens of thousands of those new signups are due to the Obamacare exchanges. We are seeing this work in some places, and it is going to take a while, and it is falling into place at different rates and different ways, depending in part on whether or not your Republican governor wants to run for president. But that is what is coming into focus more than anything. It's a patchwork of unequal outcomes. In some places it's working, in some places it is not working yet, but it's going to work. And in some places they are doing their damnedest to make sure that it does not work no matter what. Not ever if they can help it. The consequences of that being the patchwork of outcomes in our nation, I think, are hard to foresee at this point. Certainly the outcome for that politically is very, very hard to see. But it, these outcomes are beyond just politics, and they may be beyond just health care. I mean, we dramatize everything in politics by saying that everything is life and death, right? We overuse that idea. But whether or not you can access health care can be a life and death thing. And even when it is not a life and death thing, it is certainly a matter of thousands of dollars for your family, year after year after year, for regular everyday families, no matter how your family votes. I mean, if these, if these differences in outcomes persist in a way that has a real material effect on people's lives, forget the politics. Should we expect migration? Shouldn't we expect that people might move from states where you really can't get good health coverage for your family to places where you can get that coverage. It would have a huge material effect on your life if these differences between the states are sustained over time. This is a work in progress, but right now, if you are in a red state without good health, without good health coverage, you probably still are screwed now and for the foreseeable future. But in some blue states that want this thing to work, inch by inch, things really are starting to look up in very, very concrete ways. How does that change our country in the long run?
have always seen health as a frontier to conquer, Andy. <laughs> Pushing cholesterol scores beyond what <laughs> medical science thought was humanly possible. But with the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, starting to get rolled out, the idea is that that might and perhaps should change. It's a well-intentioned if complicated law, but that's what happens if you take a simple moral idea and let lobbyists f*** the shit out of it <laughs> before handing it back to you. Now, unfortunately... Oh, isn't democracy fun? <laughs> oh, God, it's so depressing. Unfortunately, the new website that the government has set up to sign up uninsured Americans uh, onto the new exchanges has been a mess. Now, look... I'm no computer whiz, Andy, which is obvious, because I just use the term computer whiz, which is a phrase you would usually find in the confused vocabulary of a grandparent. You're a computer whiz. Can you get onto the YouTube and print me out my hernia medication? Now, people who've tried to log on to healthcare.gov have been confronted with an error page filled with question marks and incoherent data. Again, Andy... I'm no expert, but that just doesn't look good. Has the website been hacked into by the Riddler? Is our only hope that some tech-savvy Batman will crash through the ceiling and save us all? It's just... It's a true mess, Andy. Again, it will be able to do great things if this website will f***ing work, which it seems it f***ing won't. And I cannot understand, Andy how this could have happened. They knew this rollout was going to be critical. And now the the screen looks like the entire website has a virus because some idiot with access to the mainframe down, downloaded porn, which <laughs> does seem like an incident that has Joe Biden's fingertips <laughs> all over it. Right. I think you could have phrased that slightly differently, John. <laughs> and now imagining Joe Biden's fingertips all over something. Um... <laughs> But I, th I think I, I look at this in a more positive way, John. You know, it's a very clearly a very okay. divisive, controversial policy. And the last thing that Obama would have wanted was for everything to go smoothly. That would have just looked like showboating and uh, rubbing Republican noses in it. And it has, of course, proved controversial. The Affordable Care Act, due to the belief of many many Americans that care is already affordable for those who can afford it <laughs> yes. and are therefore <laughs> worth caring for. I mean, right. There's, I mean, there's, there are some linguistic pyrotechnics going on there. I guess technically, grammatically, they're almost right. <laughs> it's just that's definitely not the point. The president called a press conference and he, where he said, no one is madder than me that the website isn't working as it should, which means it's going to get fixed. <laughs> so 
Is that how the White House is going to operate now, Andy? <laughs> Everything gets sorted out just as soon as the president gets angry about it. Like some kind of legislative Hulk. <laughs> Obama mad! Obama smashed complicated coding problems with fist. Now new website work. I imagine quite a lot of American news channels just cut that statement off after no one is madder than me as well. (laughs) So, how are they going to fix this? Well, the White House has claimed they're going to attempt, and I quote, a tech surge to tackle the problem, which perhaps isn't the greatest choice of language, Andy, to use in the circumstances. Maybe, just maybe, don't use a word which is synonymous with Iraq. Because... (laughs) Initially, they were describing the website problems as a glitch, and now they're essentially describing it as the Iraq War. Let, let me guess, when you launched the website, you thought you'd be greeted as liberators. You go in with the website you have, not necessarily the website that you want. And, and they attempted to explain it further by saying they're bringing in some of the best and brightest tech e- experts from inside and outside the government. Again, I'm sorry, the best and brightest. So now it's Vietnam as well. <laughs> what, what are the rest of your talking boys going to be? Don't worry, we are going to Nagasaki this issue. This website is our Alamo, but in a good way. We can hear you, the rest of the world can hear you, and the people who knock this website down will hear from all of us soon. There is... So much misinformation around now about the Affordable Care Act and what it actually does. And so much of the problem with those misperceptions could all be solved straight away if people could just log on to this website. And now they're announcing an option which directs users to sign up by phone. So that's the best solution. (laughs) Giving up and going with a different technology altogether. Why stop there, Andy? How about if Americans want health insurance, they just write a handwritten letter on fine parchment, attach it to the leg of a pigeon, (laughs) throw it in the direction of Washington and just hope for the best. (laughs) I've just logged onto the website, actually, and uh, it's just a big page saying mission accomplished. So, (laughs) all going well. Oh, God, no. And uh, in fact, that's, I mean that's that's a that's a quality <laughs> reference, Andy. It's a good joke, but it just makes me sad. <laughs> in fact, uh, I heard John uh, John Boehner talking about it this morning, saying he tried to log on yesterday to healthcare.gov, mm-hmm. and he said all I saw was an animation of Barack Obama shooting George Washington in the face with a water pistol full of pus. <laughs> but uh, Republicans have uh, repeatedly tried to derail. Uh, the uh, healthcare law, and they seem to be trying to now use this technical glitch as a way of delaying it still further. Um, and they seem to have the same attitude towards the healthcare law as Wiley Coyote had towards Roadrunner, uh, at least before their final emotional rapprochement when uh, Coyote was terminally ill in a hound hospice after con- <laughs> contracting gangrene in a leg wound sustained when catapulting himself into a cliff. A tearful Roadrunner said after uh, Coyote's passing, I came to respect Wiley as an adversary. I admired his ingenuity, even if I questioned the source of the funding for his equipment, which seemed at best suspicious, and at worst, obviously linked to either drug cartels or major terrorist groups who wanted a willing, willing guinea pig to test out potential new equipment. Whether Wilde knew the provenance of his many lethal devices, which will one day no doubt bring pain and destruction to many, I do not know. I prefer to credit him as an enthusiast, passionately devoted to the art and craft of predatory killing in an inhospitable desert habitat. Wiping a tear from his beak, Roadrunner continued, Whilst I could not call Wyle a friend, in many ways he became the touchstone by which I judged myself, my defining (laughs) nemesis. He was the Napoleon to my Wellington, the Roddick to my Federer, the Italian prison system to my Berlusconi. For all our differences, he made me the Roadrunner I am today. 
Coyote himself is said to have embraced vegetarianism and Buddhism in his final weeks, finding, his manager said, an inner peace that had eluded him throughout his time as a slavering carnivore in the wild. <laughs> I can't believe we've done this 250 times. <laughs> I can't it's even remember... It's so meaningless. <laughs> can't even remember what that bit began as. <laughs> is this still the Obamacare section? Oh, oh yeah. Maybe. I, I mean, not really. It started as that and ended up as something completely different. Thereby functioning as a satire on Obamacare itself. Yeah, good point. This was at the hearing uh, yesterday. Here's Representative... Um, we know that Sabilis was in front of the um, House hearing on the Affordable Care Act. Here is a clip from Democratic Representative Bill Pascrell um, at that same hearing yesterday. yesterday, I should say, talking about how Democrats responded to the glitches in Medicare Part D. He's saying this to Tim Griffin of Arkansas. And Bill Pascrell, you know, I think he also sort of is one of those guys who feels like He's Affordable Care up. Act, but also the Affordable Care Act wasn't all that, but it was better than what we have. And uh, he basically just, I, this was, I think he just had had enough. Listen to this. Mr. Pascrell is recognized. Uh, despite our Democrats' opposition to Part D 10 years ago, uh, we committed to making the best of the program. And because of all the changes that have occurred in Part D prescription program, 90% of seniors right now are satisfied. And why are they satisfied? Well. In my district, before that vote, I made seniors know that I was going to vote no and opposed, and I told them the two reasons. The gap, the donut hole, when you're paying for premiums, you're not getting any benefits. That was horrendous. And number two, no one was an outside source was not sitting down and, and being a party to negotiate the prices of prescription drugs. So it lost. We lost the policy fight. And what did we do? We went back to our districts and we told our seniors, although we voted no, we're, we personally believe and we'll work with the Bush administration to make it work. That's what we did. And how many of you stood up to do that? None. Zero. Zero. Let's talk. Let's not water the wine here. Let's say it like it is. You refuse to expand many of these governors Medicaid. They refuse to set up state marketplaces to and leaving millions of dollars in outreach on the table and education funding. 
And what happens? Well, to those I say this, and to you I say this who I deeply respect, here and off the floor of the committee and off the floor of the House, what are you going to do about the approximately 17 million children with pre-existing conditions who can no longer be denied health insurance coverage? You want to go back? You want to say you are no longer covered any longer? You're going to tell the parents of those kids? Which one of you is going to stand up and tell the parents of those children the game is over? Sorry, that was just a phase. Well, we well gentlemen, you. Yes, I will. Uh, I would just tell you that. You? Right here. Oh. <laughs> you ask a question, I'm going to answer it. There are. It's a false choice to say it's Obamacare or nothing. There are numerous proposals, including the one that I'm a co-sponsor of. I yield back. It deals let me take with pre-existing conditions. Let, 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 let me take the time back. Are you serious? What you just said. Are you really serious? After what we have gone through, after what we've gone through in the last three and a half years, have you? You can sit there and say that you had a legitimate alternative. After these years, we've gone through 44 votes, 48 votes now, of you trying to dismantle this the, legislation. You call that cooperation? I don't. Will the gentleman yield? I don't yield? call that cooperation. You're asking questions. Right. No, I'm the gentleman's time has expired. It's redundant. Do Dr. Price. I've been here for four years. Dr. Price is recognized. There you Thank go. you, Ms. There you go. Uh, pretty righteous. It was fun to see. That was great. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Healthcare companies look at uh, the Affordable Care Act and they think, oh, terrific. This is an opportunity for us to scam our own customers. Now, why and how? Well, it turns out there's a lot of confusion, right? And especially if you watch Fox News, they're like, oh my God, it's your plan going worse. You can't keep your old plan Obama lied to you. Right? Okay, so what are they doing? Well, some of them, like LifeWise of Washington, are sending out uh, letters saying, no, nope, that's it. You can't keep your old plan. You've got to sign up for a much more expensive one. But wait, turns out that they're not telling you about the exchanges. In fact, they're keeping that from you in order to get you to sign up to a more expensive plan when in fact the exchanges have less expensive plans. So there's this woman named Donna. Uh, she lives in Seattle. Talking Points Memo talked to her. Uh, and Dylan Scott has a good article about this. And um, her insurance company... Um, 
like I said, was life-wise. She's 56 years old. She's got a 57-year-old husband, a 15-year-old daughter. They make about 40000 a year, okay? So they got to be, of course, really careful with what they buy. Well, it turns out uh, that they said it's going to cost her $300 a month extra for this coverage because of, you know, all these transitions and changes, etc. Well, um, it turns out that when they looked into it, uh, if Donna had done nothing at all, uh, she would have ended up spending $1,000 more a month because of the changes that her company, that her insurance company was forcing upon her. Then if she went into the exchanges, well, TPM did the reporting on it, and it turns out, no, uh, she would save a lot from Obamacare. In fact, she goes on to say when she's presented with the real evidence of what can be done, she says, the info that we were sent by LifeWise was totally bogus. Why the heck did they try to screw us? Well, Donna, there I have an excellent answer for you. It's because they're a corporation. That's their job. Now, the job of a corporation is not to screw you, but it is to literally get as much money from you as possible. So, as you're going to find out from quotes from their spokespeople in a second, they're like, Donna, our job isn't to give a damn about you. It's to maximize profits. And anybody will admit that, any, any conservative, etc. Yeah, maximize profits. And in this case, they're like, this is a great opportunity to kind of trick people into paying us more when in fact they should be paying us less. So there's, it's not just LifeWise, there's Humana. And Humana, by the way, uh, is putting like, oh, by the way, you can look at the exchanges. But you know where they put it? In a small footnote, much later. First, they're like, you have to change plans, you have to pay us more money. And then if you read all the way at the bottom, oh, by the way, you don't necessarily have to do that. You actually, you should look at the exchanges. But they say, like LifeWise, hey, that's your problem, not my problem. I'm not going to tell you the truth. Don also says, people who are afraid of the Affordable Care Act should be much more afraid of the insurance companies who will exploit the fear and end up overcharging them. To which I say, of course! You know, there's all this fear-mongering about the government, and some of it is justified. Government has gotten gigantic, the NSA spying, the war after war, etc. So there's valid points there. But then on issues where they're actually trying to look out for the average American, whether it's Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, or this, where they're actually trying to get you better health insurance, so, and so that you don't get excluded with pre-existing conditions, etc., who do you think is going to look out more for you? Them or a company whose job is to maximize profits from you? Look, sometimes those companies make good sneakers or good burgers, and everybody wins, right? And sometimes they make... Insurance plans that wind up saving your life. But also, part of doing that is to get as much money out of you as possible. Saying you trust a company like that makes no sense. It doesn't mean that they're evil. It's just you have to be careful because they're not in it for your health, literally. They're in it for the profits. So, um, now, let, let me give you more details about that. So, like I said, TPM has confirmed two specific examples of customers uh, that were told prior to the marketplace opening, hey, you've got to switch to a more expensive insurance, when it turns out, of course, if you just wait till after the uh, marketplace is open under the Affordable Care Act, you'll be much better off. So let's go back to Donna for a second. Now, in Donna's case, TPM reported that, yes, in fact, on the mar in the mar uh, Affordable Care Act marketplace, she would save $1,000 than what her company insurance company had pr tried to switch her into, plus her coverage would actually be better. So for Christ's sake, don't listen to, look, don't listen to the insurance companies that are sending you bogus letters, some of them are. Don't listen to Fox News or us or anyone else, just, this is an important thing, it costs a lot of money. 
please look into it yourself. I know it's a pain in the ass. I don't like dealing with insurance. I don't like dealing with all the paperwork. I don't look, like looking through the footnotes. But this matters a lot to your family. You've got to have good coverage and make sure you pay as little as possible. So look into the insurance, what the insurance company tells you. Look into the marketplace, then make an informed decision. So now you can tell how full of it the company is because Eric Erling is the director of corporate communications at Premiera Blue Cross Blue Shield. And the company that I've been telling you about, LifeWise, is an affiliate of them, a subsidiary of them. Here's what he says about the misleading letters. Our experience is that our customers are already aware that they have other options in the market and that we've never had to tell them in the past that we have competitors. Oh, how is that for an awesome admission of, well, obviously we're trying to screw you. It's our job to try to screw you. It's your job to figure out that there are other people or places you can go and that, in fact, the Obamacare isn't screwing you. It's trying to help you. I don't have to tell you that. Well, he continues. We knew that the marketplace would have a robust marketing campaign for themselves and knew they didn't need additional help from us. Basically saying that Obamacare marketplace, it's so good. I mean, it certainly doesn't help us and it doesn't, doesn't need help from us. So good luck to you, man. If you figure out that Obamacare rocks, good for you. If you don't, you're going to pay me more money. Well, that's inadvertent honesty. And I like it because it tells you exactly what they're thinking. On the Humana case... Uh, they had, the, like I said, the open enrollment period of the marketplaces in a footnote. They've been fined in Kentucky for $65,000 for misleading information. The 2,200 respondents that had signed up for the more expensive plans have been told, hey, you know what, you don't need to do this. This is the reality, and you could actually pay less and get more coverage. So they were able to rewind that. By the way, if you didn't have any regulation, you know, the Republicans would say, ah, oh, goddamn regulation. Well, then in Kentucky those 2,200 people would have been screwed, and they would have been paying thousands of dollars more over the course of a year for God knows how many years because they were misled and told the wrong information. Regulator helped to figure that out and give them back what they needed and give them real information. That's what a regulator can do. It's not just in Kentucky. It's in four different states that Humana has been uh, looked into in Colorado, uh, they couldn't do a fine, but they were forced to send out an apology letter to their customers saying, yeah, we misled you on that. Oops, we're trying to trick you into paying us more. And I love this from their spokesperson. He says, in retrospect, the letter could have been more consumer-friendly, and we've rewritten it with that in mind. In other words, it wasn't very consumer-friendly because we're looking to screw the consumers. You know how. And... Obamacare didn't let us do it. These local state regulators didn't let us do it. Oops. So get the real information. found out that Serenity, that was her name, Serenity, we found out that Serenity had cancer, that she had leukemia in February of 1998. And at the time, I was only 15 years old, so the only time I had ever heard of leukemia was from that, I don't know if you remember this, but it was the Charlie Brown special, 
where Charlie Brown and Linus, they have a friend that gets leukemia and the girl's hair falls out. And, and then at the end of the cartoon, she gets her hair back and she's fine and she lives. And so that was the only time I had heard of leukemia. And so when Serenity got it, I really wasn't that scared. Um, you know, I was young and stupid and naive and I didn't know. And so she gets, she got leukemia and she went into the treatments and she got better for a while. And over the summer that year, she went into remission, got a new car, put like 15,000 miles on that car in just a couple of months. Um, and then in the beginning of the school year, she got sick again. And then on October 11th, 1998, she died. And it was horrible, obviously. But at the time, I didn't know the full story. And I only found out a couple of years ago. Um, I was doing, I don't even know, but it was October 11th, 2010. I, I noticed the date and I decided to Google her name because I really, I just wanted to see her face, you know. And so I Googled her name and I saw that her name was in the congressional record more than once. And that's when I found out that Serenity had actually gone to the doctors a couple times. She went at least four times. And each time, her private and health insurance company refused to pay for the test that would have shown that her white blood cell count was really, really high and that she had leukemia. And so by the time her her firecracker of her mother took her into an out-of-network, not-approved-by-the-insurance-company emergency room, um, who actually did the test, by the time that emergency room had diagnosed her correctly, she had already lost five weeks. And with cancer, finding it early is the key. And she lost that time because of them. And then later, after she went into remission, she was told that she should have a bone marrow transplant. And her health insurance company denied it. Her health insurance company said that it was too expensive. And when they denied her bone marrow transplant, those horrible, profit-seeking, morally bankrupt pricks killed my friend. It's the same thing as when you take someone who's in a coma and pull the needle out of their arm. You know, they, they cut off her treatment. And that's the industry. That's the industry that the Democrats left in charge of our health care in the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. That's the fatal flaw in this law of ours. That's the problem with the system. Because you better believe that these corporations that exist by law to make as much money as possible have an army of lawyers poking through this law right now, trying to find ways around it, trying to find ways to legally deny our care again so that they can take the money that they would spend on our bone marrow transplants, on our surgeries, on, on our medicines, and put that money in their pockets. That's what they're designed to do. They're not designed to provide us the best health care in the world. However, even though this is not the best choice, and even though they have created a very, very complicated system. The Affordable Care Act is a step in the right direction because at least it puts in a place a system. Yes, a very messy system, but a system where there was no system before. They also put rules on the private insurance industry so that they can't take our money and put it in their pockets and leave us to stay sick and die.
I'm all for accountability for the screw-ups at healthcare.gov. So it was heartening to hear Marilyn Tavener, who runs the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, own up to the failure so far. She just told a congressional committee, I want to apologize to you that the website doesn't work as well as it should, and she vowed that it can and will be fixed by the end of November at least. I do think, however, that if she hasn't done so already, she should submit a letter of resignation to President Obama, and so should Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius. It was a huge blunder, and they and the private contractors they hired were responsible for it. It's a real shame that they made such a hash out of the signing up for the Affordable Care Act because it will at least allow people to get insurance and it prohibits the companies from discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions. But Medicare for all would have been far easier and far better. The government would simply reimburse you for your medical care. That system works great already for people who are 65 and up, and it could have worked great for everybody. But by caving in on Medicare for all and by forcing people into the greasy arms of the insurance companies, the Affordable Care Act made everything needlessly complicated. The mess up at healthcare.gov is the price Obama is paying today for his health care compromise. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. During the Republican hearings on the meltdown of Obamacare's website, Representative David McKinley of West Virginia knew what he wanted. I haven't heard one of you apologize to the American public. Are apologies not in order? I, I, I just, I've not heard the word, I'm sorry, and apologize. I don't understand why there's not an apology, but I apologize. I haven't heard that from any one of the four of you. He got it. I want to apologize to you that the website has not worked as well as it should. You deserve better. I apologize. Considerate, appropriate, and futile. The apology didn't squelch the partisan tirades or quench the Republican thirst for revenge. Their outrage that the Affordable Care Act, that is Obamacare, even got this far. But it did provoke some of us to wonder, isn't it fair to also expect at least a tiny bit of remorse, just a morsel of apology from the Republicans? As NPR's astute health care reporter Julie Robner reminded us recently, When it became clear that HHS would need more money to build the federal exchange than had been allocated in the original law, Republicans in Congress refused to provide it. So to get it started, officials had to scrape together money from a variety of other offices. This happened back in the 30s, after Congress passed Social Security, but failed to sufficiently fund the board that was supposed to run it. Republican opponents of Obamacare have gone further. After it passed, they stalked it like Jack the Ripper. In the states, through the courts, all the way to the Supreme Court, which, uh uh-oh, ruled it constitutional. In last year's election, when they lost again. But quit? Never. For Republicans, this has become their Alamo. In July, less than three months before scheduled launch, the Speaker of the House, Republican John Boehner, drew one more line in the sand. 
Obamacare is bad for America. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that it never happens. And yet, the darn thing survived, despite the administration's own very serious mistakes. As Robner reported, Obama's people naively figured Republican states couldn't resist all that cash coming down from the federal government and would decide to create their own insurance exchanges and expand their Medicaid programs. Not so. Republicans, it seems, have their principles, and health care for poor people is not one of them. Ideology trumped money. Republicans aside, Obamacare had its own built-in problem, born of original sin. And some of us have to resist the temptation to say, we told you so. Four years ago, we said the public option in health care, a kind of Medicare for all, would be easier to launch and simpler to operate than the Rube Goldberg contraption that came to be known as Obamacare. Rube Goldberg, for those of you under a certain age, was the fellow who designed machines that made simple tasks much more complicated. Back in 2009, when Obama first became president, polls showed the public option was a popular idea. Lots of Americans were fed up with paying bloated premiums to giant insurance companies that charged us for their plutocratic salaries and excessive profit margins. We wanted an alternative. And once upon a time, so did candidate Barack Obama. Now, if I were designing a system from scratch, I would probably move more in the direction of a single-payer plan. But President Obama buckled when conservative Senate Democrats, like Blanche Lincoln of Arkansas, threatened to join Republicans in a filibuster if his plan included a public option. The leader, and I'm promising my colleagues that I'm prepared to vote against moving to the next stage of consideration as long as a government-run public option is included. The biggest pill among those corporate Democrats was industry lapdog Max Baucus of Montana, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. At one point, Baucus even had advocates thrown out of his hearing. Uh, Sorry, give me a recess until our restart. Want a single payer system? Why do you insist on spending more money when the single payer would give it to us at the price we're spending now? Still, Obamacare made its way through the gauntlet of mercenary senators, predatory lobbyists, and greedy corporations to become law. Rube Goldberg would have been a very happy man. His principle, why do something simple when it can always be made harder, carried the day. And by the time it became law, the Affordable Care Act was a monstrosity of complexity. Sure enough, on opening day, what the Republicans couldn't accomplish happened anyway. Screens froze. Error messages flew. Data was corrupted. The system broke down and Obamacare stalled at the starting gate. Supporters gaped at the wreckage of their best laid plans. Opponents gloated. And Republicans, of course, called hearings, which any opposition party would have done. But you must note the irony here. The party that had thrown roadblock after roadblock wherever they could and had just shut the government down to stop health care reform now loudly complained that government wasn't working and people couldn't get, you guessed it, health care reform. Apologize. And apologize. An apology. Okay, Representative McKinley, you got it. But wouldn't a little humility be in order here? Democracy is imperfect, and we need to work with what we've got, and what we've got is the Affordable Care Act. We also need to remember that at the outset, 
Big ventures often go awry, not just in the public sector. Remember when Apple introduced the iPhone 4 in June of 2010? Uh, we're having a little problem here. Steve Jobs couldn't get it to connect to the Internet. Embarrassing, but they worked it out. When Facebook went public last year, a technical error in NASDAQ system delayed the start of trading, resulting in a loss to market makers of half a billion dollars. And those of you old enough to know who Rube Goldberg was may recall the rollout of the Edsel, a Ford Motor Company automobile. So awful, its name still is synonymous with a costly flop. And let's not talk about Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, AIG, J.P. Morgan Chase, the crash of 08. Beside those calamities, Obamacare's computer problems pale. Oh yes, mistakes are made by big corporations and big government. And although I was for something else, something simpler and easier to manage, I'm betting this will get fixed. As for those strident partisan voices crowing over Obamacare's first bad round, ask yourself if those weren't some of the same voices cheering on the invasion of Iraq and promising victory would be swift and easy. Ten years, trillions of dollars, and all those lost and wrecked lives. Have we heard any apology? Washington, uh, calling in response to your November 5 show, uh, which, by the way, was absolutely brilliant. The, I, I'm sharing with everyone, it is, it is one of my favorites. To the point, Chris from Colorado Springs uh, called to share his frustration with arguing with the crazy and how frustrating it could be for him to argue with politically different persuasions. Um, I still think it's important to connect, and so I wanted to share kind of my three rules for interacting with these types of people. Number one is not to argue. You should instead ask questions. If your goal is legitimately to understand their logical connections and why they arrive at the decisions that they've come to, don't assume, don't project your assumptions of what their belief structure is. Ask them. You will learn interesting connections that they make in their mind. And they have reasons that they've constructed for, for why they believe things. But the only way to really know that is to ask. Secondly, questions are kind of insidious because you force them to examine their own beliefs and to articulate them in language. And this does interesting neurocognitive things. Uh, essentially, it's one of the few ways to get people to change their underlying beliefs is to get them to think about them on their own. Second thing to remember when arguing is that facts don't matter. In fact, they probably don't help. Best neurological research that I've been exposed to is humans make decisions in a very snap judgment way. It's very emotional and very gut level. The you know older reptilian part of the brain reaches a conclusion based on, you know, past experience or whatever, whatever's going on in there. Maybe even, you know, based on authority. Someone said this, they're correct, therefore, snap, I accept that. 
and the frontal lobe parts of the brain, the parts that are associated with reason and cognition, their role in decision making is way more to assemble facts to justify the underlying belief than to analyze facts and logically arrive at a consistent belief. It takes nearly superhuman effort and a willing participant to look at facts and make a rational decision of what belief to hold about them. So, A, realizing this, the question technique becomes even more powerful because it raises those fundamental assumptions up to the cognitive levels in the person you're talking with. But also, if you're going to argue, spend some of the time that you spend studying facts and getting your data right, and spend some of the time studying rhetoric, study debating techniques. They're going to be fundamentally more effective than any amount of facts you can found. And then the last point would be that religion is core. So many of right-wing ideological positions are either stem from a religious worldview or stem from the corruption of a religious worldview. But the kind of neat thing about, uh, I'm most familiar with Christianity, the Bible, but I think all world religions, is that they've been put in service to support practically every idea that humanity has come up with. If you look to the source documents, there's plenty of material, um, if you get right down to it, and they want to argue on a religious basis, that supports progressive ideological causes out of a religious text. Regardless of whether or not you have a personal belief in the divine inspired properties of those books, they support social equality. They support care for the planet. They support care for the poor. All of these, uh, any position that you want to argue, you find support with the Bible. Um, if you're arguing with people that give credence to the Bible, finding that support is often worth your time. Anyhow, Jay, as always, stay awesome. And Chris from Colorado, I hope this either helps or makes your upcoming holiday season less painful with whatever family you have to deal with. As always, stay awesome, y'all. Hey, Jay, what's up? This is Will from Tallahassee, Florida, calling about the discussion. Uh, Chris called in from Colorado Springs talking about consistencies and moral consistencies, ideological consistencies. I think this is way blown out of proportion. I think that people, I mean, both sides probably need to stop focusing on consistency. I mean, there's some things that you can be consistent on, but I think the world <laughs> is way too complex to try to be consistent on it. I mean, I know from a conservative's point of view, the idea that liberals don't believe in the death penalty, which want to, and want to kill babies, as they would put it, is the opposite of consistency. I just think that we live in way too much of a complex world to try to be consistent on everything. I think it's just kind of something. It's something you throw into an argument when you have no other argument. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So first of all, I want to give you a quick reminder that we are living in a brand new reality. In this reality, you are able to leave ratings and reviews for your favorite shows on Stitcher. This is uh, apparently a new thing. You couldn't do that before. And so a lot of people have found the show through Stitcher. Therefore, I think it's uh, a valuable use of time. 
time to uh, you know get as many good ratings and reviews as we can up there so the show kind of like stays up in the ratings uh, so that it's suggested to people as they use the surface naturally uh, they will come across this show and check it out so if you want to take just a couple of seconds to leave a rating review uh, it'll be greatly appreciated secondly today I, you know i wasn't sure what i was going to talk about today and, and the second caller talking about how the, the the world is too complicated to really worry about being consistent issue to issue and in, I, I don't, I don't think I agree with his driving point, but it got me thinking anyways that, you know, I sort of agree that consistency is not in and of itself a virtue to be strived for. I think that consistency is more of an indicator of something deeper. So basically what I think is that when you have sort of a, a moral and rational foundational core, that you've, you've thought through and, you know, this is how I believe the world works and this is sort of a hierarchy of values that I have that, you know, once you've sort of gone through that process and you have this, this central idea of your, your set of values that any political issue that comes to you will be filtered through that set of values. And so if your values are solid and you actually have core beliefs, then you will be consistent naturally without even trying because everything goes through the same filter. So it's when people are inconsistent that people start getting suspicious, not because of the inconsistency in and of itself, because, but because of what it indicates that, wait a second, that this person, you know, usually politicians, you know, this person, they're not saying what they believe based on, you know, a, a set of core moral and rational values that they have. They're clearly just saying either whatever they think will make them sound good to voters, whatever they think will make them sound good to their peers because they just want to fit in, uh, you know, anything along those lines. And you think, well, wait a second. I, I don't care what you have to say if you're making it up as you go along. I want to hear what you have to say if you're, if you've put some thought into it. So yeah, so I, I think that consistency for consistency's sake is not the goal at all. And in fact, you know, one of my core values is when better evidence is presented, I change my mind. So I can be inconsistent a fair amount just because my opinions will evolve over time. And, and that is in and of itself for me, a consistent thing to do. So, uh, you know, just an interesting thought that, that came to mind. Thanks to that caller. And then finally, uh, 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 Matt wrote in today, just as I was sitting down to record, uh, he spells his name with an E at the end. So if it's Maddie, I apologize. Uh, you know, we, most of our E's in English are silent. So I, I just left it off. So, so Matt wrote in saying, you know, he was listening to, to my talk about, you know, voting with our dollars and, you know, how obviously we need to be politically active, but in fact, every action we take in our lives can be considered political. And so we should always be sort of, conscious and, and aware of, of what's going on because all of our actions have impacts on the world around us. And that is inherently political. And he said, you know, I was listening to that. I was just waiting for you to mention, at, at least to some degree, the whole Russell Brand controversy. He did he would, did an interview recently. They got talking about politics. Russell Brand is apparently a famous person from England who is maybe funny. He quite possibly acts or something. And he said a lot of really intelligent things, uh, you know, very correct things about how the fundamentals of our system are broken. We would do, we would do well to have a brand new 
political paradigm in the world because the one we have simply isn't working for humanity very well. It's working for a very few people and not for most people. And so, you know, uh, sentiments echoed uh, often on this show. But he went completely off the rails when he uh, came to the conclusion that, therefore, I don't vote. And, you know, essentially suggesting that maybe no one should. And my take on that is that it's a total logical fallacy that he's come to. He thinks that the current system is corrupt, correct. He thinks that it should be uh, completely overthrown and changed. Okay, I'm on board so far. So, therefore, taking part in the current system is lending it legitimacy, which it does not deserve. So he's not vote, you know, he's not not voting out of like apathy. He's not voting specifically to avoid being a part of this corrupt system. And that it's, it's a logical fallacy to think that voting in our current corrupt, messed up system lends it any more legitimacy than not voting. You know, my take on it was that any action you take is political. And so not voting is just as political as voting. And so really he has a choice between we have a system. He would like a different system. He's not currently working on building a new system. If, if he were, you know, and the guy asked him, he's like, well, you know, what do you want to see? What, what are you doing to build a new system? And he said, oh, I don't know. I mean, I've been busy. I've been like doing this magazine tour or whatever. And so, you know, if he was building a new system and he said, look, the old system is illegitimate. I'm building a new system. I'm not taking part of the old one. And I, I think other people shouldn't either because I want you to come take part in my new legitimate system. And I want it to gain legitimacy by people, you know, switching over and you know, not taking part in the old and taking part in the new, you know, that argument I would hear out, but he's not saying that he's saying, look, I'm busy, so I'm not doing anything to to make the world better or change the system all i'm doing is not taking part in the current system and and it's it's a fallacy to think that voting lends any extra legitimacy to the current system you know if you know the corporations who own like the voting machines if they got paid by the vote then i'm i'm hearing this conversation if politicians get you know campaign donations based on how many votes they get then i'm hearing this conversation but as long as we're just talking about someone's going to get into office in the current messed up system we have then there's really no excuse to not having your voice be one of the voices involved in deciding who's in that office regardless of how corrupt and terrible the system is in which that person uh, is going to be in office. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I don't, I highly doubt that any clip talking about that is going to make it on the show. Uh, but so th- that's my take on it. And, uh, so yeah, thank, thanks to Matt for bringing that up. I, I, I responded to him saying, Oh yeah, good idea. I'll talk about that. I fucking hated that clip. And, um, all I did was like yell at it in my own living room, uh, while my girlfriend kind of, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, no, I, totally agree and i i sort of just unleashed on her so 
good reminder to let you guys know my thoughts on that as well. Uh, so that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And Stories and wonder what we're doing